Welcome to Coach Your Brains Out, the show that explores learning from the top minds in volleyball and beyond. With your hosts, John Mayer, Billy Allen, Andrew Fuller, and Nils Nielsen. Today, we're excited to have the author of Coaching Better Every Season and a professor, the professor of sports science at Fresno State University, Wade Gilbert. Wade, thanks for joining us. Oh, thanks for having me on. Excited to be a part of your show. Uh, we're excited too. We we recently had uh, John Winder, who you know, who's at Fresno State, and he, he suggested that we speak to you about this idea, which I hadn't heard of before. Uh, he said it's called an environmental engineer. I'm wondering if you could explain what that is and what it means to be an environmental engineer. Yeah, that, that's something that kind of hit me just in the last few years. I've been, you know, working with coaches for 30 years now. And what I started to notice more and more, well, as I learned too, across disciplines, I've been involved in nonprofits. So learning from uh, doctors, engineers, fighter pilots, uh, CEOs, you start to see patterns. Um, and, and even though a lot of those disciplines don't necessarily cross over or speak to each other, um, the same principles of excellence apply across the board. And, and, the big one that I, I kept noticing was the environment. The environment that people create really dictates the behaviors that are going to follow. And then I started to re- look into the research a little bit on that. And there's, um, it's, it, in some areas, it's referred to as the built environment. So, for example, if you want people to lead healthier lives, the most effective way to do that is change their environment. Put uh, nice street lights in their neighborhood put sidewalks, put trails, build parks. So so people are like water. People conform to the shape of the container you you put them in. And so I started to, it was more uh, more in my, my consciousness, I guess, and I started to look for it as I spent time with other teams and coaches around the world. And, and sure enough, it's what I, I really started to see more and more of is that um, it's, it's much more powerful and easier to be honest with you to change an environment to try and then try to change a person and and so what can you do in your environment that forces people into the behaviors that you want um you know how you how you start a practice how you uh, finish a practice how you enter a locker room how you exit a locker room uh, just all those kind of moments and touch sp- tone, uh, kind of spaces that people subconsciously in many cases kind of fall into based on the environment that they're put into. Cool. Well, can you give us some examples how uh, coaches listening might be able to design practices in their environment to kind of train those behaviors they want? Yeah. So um, one example would be how you, I always kind of look for naturally occurring spaces or moments in an environment so every practice has a start and an end Uh, so look at how your athletes come into your gym for example so do you have are you creating an environment where they have to adopt some kind of behavior that's aligned with your values your team values so if a big part of our team is family right it's all but we're a family we're going to support each other we're going to play for each other so look at how they come into the gym. Do they come into the gym, drop their bag, and go and talk and hang out with their best friend or their, their main buddy that they like to hang out with? 
that's not family. That's just <laughs> cliques, right? And one person hanging out with isolating other people. So can we put a, um, a protocol in place that would force them into the behavior? So for example, when you come in to the gym, the first thing I do is drop your bag and go and greet all your other teammates and your coaches. That's just how we roll around here. So you could actually structure the environment that way so you don't get a ball, for example, or you don't get um, access to the court even until you do that. So it's almost like a gateway. You have to go through that step to get into the practice in a sense. Um, one thing I saw, uh, some some football coaches, basketball coaches will even paint a line like from the locker room, you know, this would be pro sport or college sport, but paint a line from the locker room to the court or to the field, and you are not allowed to step over that line until you um, make some gesture or greet somebody else or touch, you know, touch a sign on the wall that reinforces our values and, and what we represent as a team. So those are a couple of things, even so like locker rooms, for example, when p kids are sitting in locker rooms or athletes are sitting in locker rooms, do you let them sit wherever they want? Do you mix it up? Do you have, I, I at the moment I'm coaching 12 year old kids, ice hockey. Um, we actually put last year on, on the door occasionally, not every practice, we'd put a roster and a seating chart. So this is where you're sitting today. Oh, well, what's this all? You know, of course, the kids, what's this all about? Yep, you're going to sit beside somebody else today. That's got to get to know each other. <laughs> right. And then what about something um, maybe a little more abstract, like, like competitiveness? Uh, if I want to instill that, how would I engineer the environment? Um, yeah, just throughout the practice, not, not just the beginning or end, but in the way we could. Yeah. Yeah, and that's something Jonathan and, and I have talked a lot about. And, and I've seen it. Um, the Texas Rangers asked me to come in and observe them in spring training this past year. And that was one of the main things I was looking at. Like, there's a lot of people put in a lot of time in practice. And I remember Coach Wooden, when I worked at UCLA, he one of his favorite quotes was, or mantras was, never mistake activity for achievement. Mm -hmm. and And coaches... In our society, we're notorious for equating time with achievement. Like my students will say, oh, I don't understand why I didn't do well on the test. I studied, you know, 30 hours last week. Who cares? I don't care how long you studied. How did you study, right? So if we look at how we practice, is it purposeful practice? So do we, is, is, there, is there a consequence to failure and success in each of these drills. So I can hit 20 serves and some are in, some aren't, some hit the net. Okay, but what's the consequence? I just grab another ball. So that it's not really intentional practice. And there may be, you know, there's a time and a place for that. If I really just want them to get a feel for hitting the ball or they're warming up, okay, just, just hit a bunch of balls. But if I'm really training, there should be some consequence to, to failure. I'm not saying punishment, but there, you know that there could be some physical consequence, but there there should be some some meaning <clears throat> added to to the practice. So one of the things Jonathan started to do last year, and, and I've seen this with other teams, I shared it with them, is actually scoring the the drills, um, and it could be you know subjective, but basically giving them a score on, on each athlete on each drill. 
you're an A, B, C, D, whatever, and here's why. Or at the end of a practice, you were a B today, you know, and post it on the wall or share it with the kids. So, so they know that everything kind of, everything matters. Because otherwise, it's really, you know, you've seen this. It's just, it's easy to go through the motions and say, yeah, I, I practiced today. Yeah, but did you get any better today? Yeah, it's really interesting. And what other, just curious, um, what are some other values that people have kind of asked for your input on implementing in their gyms? It seems like competitiveness would be would be one. Is there any other common ones that you see a lot and have to kind of engineer an environment for? Yeah, a big one at the moment moment um i've really started to see is performing under pressure mm, yeah so and i actually don't even like that term i know it's a common term but i, I like thriving under pressure I, I don't want you to just be able to perform under pressure i want you to thrive under pressure and so how do we create environments that teach you how to how to thrive in in those moments so um again putting something on the line when, when you're doing drills, make them competitive, have them compete against each other, keep score. Um, the, the, the most um, extensive example of that, that that I've seen is, um, and you may have come across this, Anson Dorrance at North Carolina. He's the, the soccer coach. And he actually took the idea from watching Dean Smith when he was coaching Michael Jordan at North Carolina. And Anson Dorrance was a young coach he came in, he's coaching men's and women's soccer, and he actually ended up coaching our women's World Cup team at one point too. But he went in and he watched a basketball practice and he noticed a lot of activity, um, a lot of graduate assistants, a lot of people milling around, and with clipboards. And, and he found out after talking to Dean Smith that what they were doing was scoring every player on every rep on every drill. So every single thing you did in the practice was graded and you got a, you got a report card at the end of practice. Here's what you graded and a ranking, more importantly, a ranking. So here's where you ranked in the team today. And he called that the competitive cauldron and he's written books about that. And, and you could look that up online. Um, have you guys heard of that? Yeah. For yeah. Sure. It's actually become yeah. fairly common in, in volleyball. Yeah. And, um, we actually sort of had Anson uh, on the show. We had a, someone else interview him. But uh, yeah, it's something that we've, uh, we use, I use with my Loyola Marymount team, not to the extent and the extreme that he does. Um, I think the one thing I sometimes worry about is the comparison. And yeah. How com- comparison can, uh, you know, can lead to some toxic uh, responses from your athletes. So I, I, sometimes that's where I struggle with it to not, to be it about to have it be about like you being your best versus you comparing to mm. the athlete next to you. I think that's the big uh, struggle with it sometimes. What are your thoughts on that? Yeah, and that's why I I like to refer to best principles instead of best practices, mm-hmm. and and that's a, a term that's very common in our language. You know, everyone's looking for best practices. What are the best practices? And to me, there, there really aren't any best practices. I guess you could say there's situational best practices. So that's a best practice for that team or that athlete in that moment and that coach. But so it's not about replicating what other people are doing, but it's good to, to look again across sports, right? Get out of volleyball, look at other sports, go watch coaches in other sports, um, have coaches from other sports come in and watch you 
and then you then you can kind of step back and you can look at the principle behind the practice okay so the competitive cauldron that worked for dean smith it works for ants and dorns but there's some things i'm not comfortable with or might not fit with my team great that's fine but what's the principle there the principle is there's consequences to our our reps and our training and i want to build some intent into practice so and then you play with it then you adapt it to to your particular setting and your values and how you know how you coach but that's that's why i think the principle there of having at least some component of practice or practices where where they are um there is a little bit more pressure because what's pressure pressure is just perception of a situation there really isn't any pressure doesn't exist and until you allow it to exist so can i create situations in practices at least periodically where they perceive them to have more meaning mm-hmm. and let's work through that yeah and i really like the idea of scoring it are there any other ways that you can engineer a practice to kind of feel like that game environment have you thought i've worked with anyone yeah. else so it's funny because um, I most of what I've learned, honestly, I've just stumbled across, right? It wasn't necessarily intentional. I said, oh, that's kind of neat. So we were doing a study with um, uh, one of our basketball teams here years ago, and they went to five straight NCAA tournaments, and our team had no team, and this was our women's basketball team. They had never gone to any NCAA tournament, and all of a sudden they went to five in a row with this coach. And so we were studying what he was doing and observing him, and and then um, it struck me, actually, the guy who did the very first study on Coach Wooden in 1974, a guy named Ron Gallimore, he's still alive. He was a psychology professor at uh, UCLA. We had connected when I worked at UCLA, and we still keep in touch. And, and we started talking about, you know, what, what is it that um, that coach is doing in his practice and then in terms of the structure of a practice. We, we, anyways, we just went down this rabbit hole, and I said, yeah, I wonder if you could actually map, like charter map out the flow of a practice in terms of the demands, uh, physical and mental demands of, of the drills. So you'd actually get a graph. you get like a flow chart. And so we tried it with that basketball team, and so we actually I could send it to you after. Um, we you you score each drill based on five or six different factors like if it's a new drill then there's more cognitive demand right i have to pay more attention i have to you know i'm i'm learning not only the drill and the skill in the drill uh if it's a drill we do all the time then it has a low cognitive demand so we'll get a low score if it's just me practicing individually that's a low demand if it's me with my whole team in a game situation that's a higher demand so you get you can actually score the each drill on the on the demands and we did that and then we looked at across the practice we just graphed it and just out of curiosity, what do you think the, the, the graph might look like? Like you think it would be a straight line or an inverted U or start low and finish high, like a 45-degree angle? I picture start low, finish high. Start low, finish Why would you say that? I just picture people like ramp up and practice. They warm up and kind of ease yeah. into it and then okay. you know, at the end you score it. Is that how you want them to play in a game? The opposite of that. No, no, absolutely not. You want to be come out and yeah. So this is what 
was kind of the revelation. He didn't know. He had never really thought about it, to be honest with you. He said, well, I, yeah, you know, this is just how we always run practices and it seems to work. And it was um, basically just peaks and valleys. So it started pretty moderately high, went down a little bit, then up, then down, then up, then down, then up, then down, then up. What's a basketball game? A basketball game's a game of runs. You're recovering, you're attacking, you're recovering, you're attacking. And you want to start at a high pace. You don't want to get down 10 points and have to warm up into the game, right? And so he looked at it and said, wow, that's actually looks like a basketball game. I said, yeah. <laughs> so it's, you're actually designing practices that mimic the cognitive and physical demands of a game. So you're training them for games. And again, it's not, oh, every practice should look like that. But just to have that awareness of, you know, maybe periodically I kind of map out my practices and score them and, and see, is that really what I, the demands I want? Because maybe this week, you know, it's early in the season. I, I, I want to keep them relatively low. Or maybe it's, you know, a short practice late season. I want the practice high. So we started to play around with that. And, and sure enough, it's not, again, it's not a recipe or a rule, but it's another way to kind of, be more aware, I guess, of how you're how you're designing a practice. So why that drill before that drill? And it has to be deeper than well. That's how we always run practice. Yeah, but why? I like it. Yeah, I'm on the same page. And I mean, we we love motor learning, and I'm always thinking, how much is this drill going to transfer to the match? Yeah, I've, co- I've coached my teams that way, and come into practice, and like we don't want to do stuff that's not going to help us for the match. But I've got, every once in a while I get pushed back from some athletes saying like, I need a longer warm up. I want to feel good on my first couple of touches. And uh, mm-hmm. I don't know if you have any ideas on, on kind of responding to that. Yeah. So just like you have a warm up in a game, right? So can you, can you kind of mimic the, the pacing and the timing? So it might not be exact timing because you don't know how long a match is going to last. Um, but can our warm up be, relative in a sense our practice warm-up be relative in length to a game warm-up um so they they you're basically training them for a game condition right and then as soon as that warm-up is done you need to be ready to go 100 percent on that first rally you, you can't warm up in into a match i mean people do all the time but if you want to be really good right. you can you can win most of your matches by knocking people on their on their on their butt in the first first set, right? Right. Yeah, that's interesting because I picture indoor um, having a really long time block to warm up, but on the mm-hmm. beach, beach sometimes we have like five minutes or ten minutes on the court. So it makes mm-hmm. sense. It makes sense in practice to replicate that and get a, a routine down that you can kind of get into it quickly. And again, it depends. I always say for practice and training, it just it, everything should revolve around the purpose. Like, what's the purpose today? If today is kind of a recovery day or a field day, I just want you know, I want them walking out of practice day feeling good about themselves. That's the main goal today. Well, then it doesn't have to mimic a match, right? So it's really kind of I always start with the purpose. What is the purpose of of today's session? And then design engineer a session that will meet that purpose. And do you think there's a time for the uh, to have that kind of purpose to make them feel good about themselves rather than just kind of always be challenging them and learning and getting better? Or? Yeah, for sure. So, you know, deliberate practice is a hallmark of expertise. And we know that it's really hard. <laughs> you're practicing things you're not good at. 
you know, Karch would talk about ugly practice or train ugly or growth mindset or whatever term you want to use, but it's, um, it's hard stuff. It's hard physically, it's hard mentally, and the, de- the default is failure. You're trying to do things you're not really good at yet, so you're going to fail a lot, and that's not fun for most people, especially younger you know, athletes. So I, I honestly think you know, building in that kind of practice, high-intensity, deliberate kind of practice, should be kind of moments in, in a practice. Now, depending on the team, right, the makeup of the team, where you're at in the season, um, all those variables kind of come into play in terms of how much of that is the right, it's dosage, right? So how, what's the right dose? And that's, I guess you could argue kind of the art of coaching where, you know, knowing your team, uh, communicating as a staff, talking to senior players on your team, kind of get a feel for them. Um, even I know some of the Olympic teams I work with now, they're very sophisticated with uh, load monitoring. So they know exactly, you know, physiologically um, where where the athletes are each day and so they, they can adjust the training based on that cool and you mentioned uh, it's easier to change the environment than it is um, maybe the player but are there any tools or tips you work with athletes on for developing some of those abstract things like competitiveness or confidence yeah for sure uh, the number like confidence for example the number one every research across fields you'll find the number one source of confidence is competence so the best way to build someone's confidence is to teach them skills so if they're getting better and that's what made coach wooden so great um he was a master teacher and he wasn't a positive guy he wasn't he wasn't uh didn't give a lot of praise but he put his energy into teaching and he he really spent you know, for every practice, 40 years of, of coaching, he would spend two or three hours a day on practice planning, which seems ridiculous, right? How many coaches just show up and kind of go through the motions? I know we get busy different times, but at least having some time set aside, some regular time set aside to design or review your practice plan and be really strategic about um not just a list of drills and how much time they're going to take and maybe equipment like in, in this drill, where do I want to stand to get the, the vantage point I'm looking for today? You know, what keywords do I want to repeat over and over and over again in this drill? So they hear the same things and I'm going to use those same words in the game. So it makes it easy for them. So the best way to build confidence is, is to and refine and build your skill, your skill set. So I always tell players and coaches like, no amount of confidence will help you do something you can't do. Hmm. You, you have to have the foundation of skill. I don't care how much you believe you can do something, how much imagery you do, and how much you got people telling you you can do it. If you've never done it and you can't do it, none of that matters. So put our focus on building that, that really solid foundation of skill and then we layer on, you know, parallel to that or concurrent to that, then, yeah, we would definitely want to use all the standard kinds of things like self, positive self-talk and, and imagery and um, even just things, simple things like breathing. I do a lot of just simple breathing um, techniques, you know, deep belly breathing. There's an app um, that I use with a lot of teams now. It's called Heart Rate Plus. And there's a free version and then the... the uh, I think the the paid version is I think five dollars now, and um, 
just you know things that we we take for granted let's let's start with breathing do you know how to breathe properly <laughs> you know so you can uh, put yourself in the right frame of mind because breathing is a trigger for neurochemistry and physiology it's just simple hmm. well it, it can be simple but you got to practice it right makes sense what about um how can coaches engineer their environment when they're outside of practice and they get to be around their athletes and their staff, but like the locker room or when the office or yeah, yeah, stuff like that. Yeah. Yeah. So I'm always fascinated when I go into teams and environments and look at, at how they design them. So, um, I'll give you one example, like walking, uh, down a hallway at one of the pro clubs that was at a while ago, there was a full length Florida ceiling mirror. So you're walking down the hallway to go to the locker room and, and you're walking into this mirror and then you turn right into the locker room and on that mirror it said a champion reflects and so you you have that message and it's you it's you know it starts and ends with you how much do you want it so just little things like that um how you enter a locker room uh and and leave for example i've seen teams you know they put things on the wall that you have to touch mantras or statements or things like that. Um, but I'm also a big believer. It's, it's good to have some, uh, consistent things, but it's, it's critical, I think, to have things that are refreshed. So I give you an example, another club I was at the players, as you're walking down the hallway to go into the, the building, they have a picture of their championship in one, one professional championship. And I said, okay, that's that's nice, but honestly, I doubt any of your players really even consciously notice that. It, it's it's just a picture on the wall. They walk by it every day, um, thousands of times for some of these players. Why don't you put, you know, have that in your facility somewhere? It's important. But if the first thing people see when they walk into your facility, why not put up an LCD panel or a screen and you can put a quote of the day or you can put a message of the day or you can put an image so and then you and then you talk about that and you teach that so it it's repetition and reinforcement of of key values but it's fresh right yeah, otherwise it becomes wallpaper totally and i remember i was i won't say which school but i was at a very prominent school not too long ago as part of a pro uh, a tour with pro coaches from another country and you know one of the coaches came up to me at one point and said man look at the stuff on the walls like it, there wasn't a, a it felt like a blank square inch of wall in anywhere in the facility it's just quote after quote after quote after mantra and you watch the athletes working out nobody's it's just no like you say it's just noise it's just right. letters on a wall at some point right but i do think you know there are some really key core values that are kind of non-negotiable this is part of our club part of our legacy that should be stable but then everything around that to teach that and reinforce that i think has got to be refreshed and how do you uh recommend a coach discover what their core values are and narrow it down yeah um that's something i do a lot of work with with teams is is kind of let's start with what really matters to us and 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 actually, the, the U.S. snowboard team, I've been working with them, they just refer to it as how we roll, is how we roll. And and so 
what we often will do is um, we'll identify uh, it's got to be joint so it's got to be ideally this is what I've seen where it's most powerful um, a conversation between coaches and athletes in terms of you know what's our identity this year so yeah the club or the school has an identity but it, it's the identity is living it's a living breathing identity you know UCLA basketball is not what it was when Wooden was there right so it's what's our identity right now or what do we want our identity to be um, and like uh, one of the exercises the New Zealand All Blacks uh, do or they used to do anyways each season they would um, as they'd have a team meeting and they say, okay, if you were to ask people you respect and trust um, what uh, about our team, what would you want them to say? So that's how they start their conversation. And it's funny, I did something, I was with an, another team a while ago and they were playing with the national team and they were playing against Japan. And after the game, the Japanese media was there and they were interviewing um, the Japanese players and I, I told the coach, I said, watch, you know, watch this interview. It was in English, <laughs> parts of it. And said, you know, watch some of this interview. And I said, why don't we ask our athletes, what, what do you think they're saying about us right now? You know, what would you want them to say about us? Oh, yeah, they're, it's just what we thought. They folded late in the game, you know, business as usual. Or, yeah, we won, but, man, that was a tough game. You don't want to play that team because you, you're going to feel it when you play them win or lose so you put it in real scenarios instead of abstract like what are our values that's just really abstract you know what do you want other people to say about us what you know what go to the end of the season what do you want to be able to look back and be most proud of you know in terms of how we played or moments um imagine you're being interviewed you know you're sitting you're fly on the wall and your opponent's being interviewed after playing you playing you what would you want them to say about what it's like to play against you so stuff like that, and then it brings out all these really neat ideas, and and then you kind of whittle it down from there, and, and yeah. then start. Yeah, yeah, I like that way of, of framing it. Um, with all the the high level teams that you've worked with, are there any values that are consistent among them and that they share? Yeah, um, definitely trust. Um, without trust, you can't reach high levels um you don't necessarily have to love or like each other um you got to work together um and in order for me to be to and you know this both from competing at high levels you you got to be free in a sense like you can't be acting you can't be worrying about what other people are thinking or saying about you or or how you look like really to be your best you you just you, you're genuine. You're just being you. You're free in a sense. Think of the when you really are most alive, the people you're around, they just accept you for who you are. You can be you. You're not acting some version of you. So to be able to do that, I have to trust. So I'm being vulnerable, right? Because it's going to be messy. I'm going to look like a fool sometimes. And it's, it's who I am. And so I have to, I'm being vulnerable. So I have to trust that you're not going to, you know, abuse that vulnerability in a sense. Um, so trust is a huge one um, that I see uh, either really facilitates great teams or brings potentially great teams down or pulls them apart. 
And could you take us into one of these teams that you've been to? I don't know if you can give an example of just how, like, I don't know, one of the, the most high-level coaches or uh, teams you've seen and, and how they how they engineer a really productive environment. So they do um, they do constant. So it's not a this is a mistake I see a lot is, and part of it's just time and energy and effort and whatnot. But uh, you know a, a lot of these the values types activities they happen in the preseason, right? We'll go on a camping trip. We'll do a ropes course or we'll do whatever. So. We do team building. We invest a lot of time at the beginning of a season or a preseason because we feel, oh, yeah, we have time. We'll do it then. And then we move on, right? Do, and do we ever, ever, ever revisit it in a season? Oh, no, I'm too busy. You know, we got games, got this, got that, got that. So it's almost like um, think about it this way. It would be like you um, realizing the value of exercise, regular exercise for your health, mental and physical health. So you do a bunch of exercise for a week and you say, okay, yeah, it's going to carry me over the next six months. I'll be fine. You know, if I get time, I'll sneak in a little bit more here and there. No, you got to do it all the time to get the benefits of it. So the, the best teams I've seen, like pro level world championship teams, they'll hire, they'll have somebody on staff. That's, part of their job they'll have different titles high performance coach or mental performance coach or whatever but a formal part of their job is to keep their keep the culture fresh they're kind of cultural architects in a sense so it's not an if time thing for a coach it's someone's job on the team that was part one of our interview with wade gilbert join us next week for part two here on Coach Your Brains Out by Gold Medal Squared.